Welcome to Relax Your Grid. I'm your host, Matt Brown. In this episode, I speak with Max Allard about his forthcoming album, Odes, Codes, which was produced by Jamie Stone. Max wrote the bulk of the music on the record, which also features a co-write with Jamie and covers of Chili Gonzalez and Aphex Twin. You'll get a first listen to a bunch of the tracks, and the episode concludes with a premiere of my favorite piece from the record. Here's my conversation with Max. Max Allard, welcome to Relax Your Grid. It's an honor to be here. I'm a fan of this podcast. Well, that means a lot. You're not only a fan, though. Um, you're a Patreon supporter of it, which I so love. So you're officially a super fan. Oh, yes. But you've also supplied um, almost all of the transitional music, which I really appreciate. Your boogie-woogie banjo that people have heard and then some gorgeous uh, electric guitar kind of jazzy turnarounds and, and resolutions. So thank you for all of that. Oh, thank you. It's really cool to hear it back. I remember the first time I listened back to it and I thought, that's me. And I, I was surprised it was home recorded. It just sounded so so professional and with everything else. Hopefully that's not boasting, but I, I appreciate you using the music. With your blessing, you know, we're mostly going to talk about your new record that's going to come out soon. Would you be cool with us using clips from your new record as the transition music for this episode? Oh, I hoped you would ask. Yes. One of the things I really dig about this new record is that it's all instrumental. It's almost all solo. And yet, this is a huge accomplishment. It makes me feel emotions like constantly. Like it, mm. I respond to this music. Well, that's good to hear. There are tracks that make me cry. There are tracks that make me kind of giggle and others that make me all pensive um, in addition to my usual uh, pensive qualities. So I think <laughs> we can intersperse little meaningful moments just stolen from your forthcoming <laughs> debut album, and people will hopefully also cry or feel pensive. That's that's good, and it means a lot that you say that. I'm glad that you. I'm very happy to hear about your how you responded. What's the name of this record? The record name is Odes Codes. The slash is silent. What does that refer to? Uh, it's a title that Jamie came up with. The Odes refers refers to three of the songs on the record being dedications, and Codes refers to, I suppose, thinking of music as code. I guess music can be thought of a code if you, um, if you if you interpret it that way. But that it was a title that Jamie came up with, and at first I was like, eh, I don't know, but that it really grew. It really really grew on me, and I could I could totally imagine it at the end, and I I really you know couldn't come up with anything better and in the end i just thought this is this feels right so the jamie you're talking about is jamie stone who was recently a guest on this podcast yep i love that that episode um and he's brilliant and tell the tell the story of how you came to know about jamie and then meet him and then have him help you make this record yes i first met jamie at the 2019 banjo summit in fort collins colorado um i knew I had known of him before. Um, I actually don't know how I first heard about him, but I know that I knew him for a while. At least I'd seen him on the socials on Instagram, and I was aware a little bit of his music. But um, regardless, I was very excited to take from him at the Banjo Summit, and I remember just meeting him, and we all, when we we really you know responded to each other's styles. Um, I remember specifically the memory that stands out at that Banjo Summit um, was jamie's um composition class his composition workshop 
um, or I played him my I played on my composition Soleil from my EP Soleil. <laughs> That is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard on banjo. It almost made me cry. I'm a little bit hesitant to actually um, critique you, but if it's cool with you, I have some things to say. And he did have some things to say, and they were profound. They were great. So I was, I was very honored to hear him say that, and I was also very happy to hear his criticism and everything. He's always been very helpful with that and critical in a good way, especially him being a producer. You want somebody with that, um, with that personality. Yeah, that's a really good point about him in in particular but also just any sort of producer or feedback generator in the arts is that he's really good at giving feedback and criticism or just analysis like even if it's not a judgment thing of like that was great or that sucked or you know or any other language that might mean you know a, a judgment he's he's he has really big ears and he always has very specific and usually very inspiring i find feedback about an idea whether it's a musical one or a you know concept for a workshop or for you know an album or whatever it is um i remember i was at that banjo summit taking some photographs to help jake sheps out who runs it and it's a it's an extraordinary event so if any any of the listeners are interested in progressive three-finger banjo styles i don't know of a better place to go besides um bela flex camp which you've also attended in North Carolina. Um, but this is a very small event and it's in beautiful Colorado. I remember being in a workshop that he taught there that you were in the room for that was about rhythms. That was about, you know, time signatures that are not common in bluegrass. I remember that. Yep. And I, I noticed, um, I noticed that you really stepped up to the plate in a really cool way with some, you know, playing in seven or playing some of these very challenging, meters for someone who spends most of their time up to then maybe playing in four and three mm-hmm. and that's about it even though seven is just some combination of threes and fours or two twos and a three but um and i remember hearing from you about this composition workshop and that jamie had this great response and it wasn't too surprising that you know after that that this idea came about it was jamie's idea right didn't he approach you about helping you make a record Yes, he did back in August. I remember he had just, it was the day he'd released his single Awake Awake and I reposted it on Facebook and expressed my appreciation for it and how much I really, really was moved by it. Um, and then he that I think it just sort of reminded him about me briefly and he's got in contact and said, hey, send me some send me some demos. Let's I'd be interested in producing a record for you. Yeah. And all of this happened during the pandemic because he didn't get to tour that album Awake as we discussed in his episode, you had to you had to send demos back and forth from Chicago to Colorado, where he lives. Um, and y'all had quite a pre-production process where you'd send him these originals that you were coming up with and then he'd give you feedback and then you'd change things. And it sounds like he really helped shape even just the, the material itself before you arrived to record. Right. Um, yeah, he, he just contacted me and simply said, send some demos. And I had been writing music all throughout the pandemic 
I had quite a few ideas. I just had to get around to recording them. And I think I had pretty much put together almost a full record's worth of 16 or so tracks by September. Um, and then he, he got back immediately. Um, he even told me about certain uh, certain musicians and albums that reminded him of, and I got listening um, to them. Like I remember specifically on the call, he said it reminded me a little bit of Chili Gonzalez's Solo Piano 2 record, and I didn't know who this was, who Chili Gonzalez was. But then that night I listened to Solo Piano 2, and it completely changed my life. I was like, oh, this is this guy's my new favorite piano player. So um, yeah, if you're uh, if you're interested in hearing a great piano record, check out Chili Gonzalez Solo Piano Two. Um, but anyway, go back to the story. He just he had all immediate. He was very um, receptive. Like he heard the music and he said, "This is great. Yeah, I can can't really imagine it any other way than solo. It's uh, like you have a solo record pretty much here." And we had a few more correspondences uh, after that. So I guess after September, probably. If, I, if my memory serves me, beginning around October, we began having just back and forth Zoom calls of making arrangements. Obviously, Jamie's still, you know, the producer, so he's um, he's still going to give his critiques. And we changed, I shouldn't say changed, but we, ch- uh, well, yeah, we changed the arrangements of certain compositions. Um, really, it was really him who helped bring them. I mean, they were, he, he said in the interview very modestly and kindly that they were already pretty much ready to go. But it, he really, he really made them, um, what they were eventually, he made them become something special. Um, they, not that they weren't special, but he, he was very, he developed them in a way that helped them shine in a new way. Yeah. We did that back and forth for two months, I think October to December. And that time frame. we probably had about five or six calls. And before we knew it, you know, we went very fast. We, I think we worked on like three compositions on average, um, per call. And just after doing four or five calls, we, he said, you know, let's let's do it. Get your COVID tests, come to Colorado. Uh, and then before you know it, we're in the studio recording the record. That's amazing. And yeah, y'all recorded in, I guess, January? Yeah, very early January. Uh, yeah. Of this year, 2021. Right. And am I right that at this point, the tracks are all edited, mixed, and mastered? The photography's being done, mm-hmm. so it's like we're you're really close to being able to get this out into the world one way or another. Yes. The record is mastered. Um, we just actually got the retouched photos back from the photographer and he was very quick about that. We only got the photos taken about a couple weeks ago, a little, almost three weeks ago, but now they look great. I just saw them today. We, and I think I know like my top four, top five. Now Jamie and I are just gonna have to argue about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've at this point, We've just got to get a designer and find a producer, I suppose. I mean, I mean, find a label, get, find a label and get the design done. And then we'll pretty much be on our way. That's exciting. Well, um, folks who are listening, you're in for a real, a real treat because Max has given his blessing that we'll do a premiere of, of one of the tracks um, at the end of this episode. So make sure you listen through to the end. Max, is it okay with you if we um, premiere... Benton's Lullaby. Yes, let's do it. Cool. For folks who don't know, Benton is my son, and Max surprised me and our family by writing this tune and delivering it via YouTube, which is how all friendships are um, maintained these days, on my birthday of last year. And uh, it was a gift to me, but also to our, our son who had just been born. And 
it's a gorgeous, gorgeous tune. And so there, there is a lovely YouTube video on Max's YouTube channel of him playing this, but I love the studio version and you'll hear all sorts of snippets of the many of the rest of the songs as we converse about them. But, um, I couldn't resist asking for that. So stay tuned to the very end and you'll get to hear that track in its entirety for the first time ever. Okay, so let's talk about some of the tracks in particular because there's a lot to say and I'm so excited for folks to hear snippets and then of course the whole thing when it comes out. The album, it's 14 tracks long, 47 minutes of music and it starts with Of The Morning which is just so gorgeous and thoughtful and this is the one that like tears just like they form kind of immediately. Where did this come from? Do you remember making this or like was there a specific memory or moment that triggered this tune? I remember writing it um, in the August of 2020. We were at the ca- our we, my family has a little cabin in Michiana Shores, and I remember just waking up one morning experimenting with this tuning that I had that I use on the record a lot for those banjo players that are listening from strings one to five. It's C B flat. F, B flat, low B flat, then a D. So it's sort of like double C tuning down an octave, uh, double C tuning down a whole tone, but then you have the fifth string down to the major third of D. So anyway, I was experimenting with this new tuning I discovered or thought of, um, and there wasn't really much planning. It just sort of played itself out of me. I remember sitting down and just sort of thinking, contemplating. I don't even know what I was thinking about, but it came out of me um, and I, I remember this is one that Jamie really helped on. He like made some of the helped brainstorm some variations for it. Uh, like the second time it goes to the melody and goes to the one chord and has that climbing of the bass, boom, 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 ba da, lands in the four chord. That was sort of, I'm not sure if he, I don't think he came up with that, but it, from his suggestions, that was born. that I was just sort of repeating the harmonic motion from the first A part, you know, that sort of stuff. So, but yeah, that's pretty much all there is to say about it. Um, I remember writing it in the, really the time span of that day. It must've been only like 10 or so hours, but um, of course I'm disregarding Jamie's time um, fixing it up, but I, I pretty much knew that the song was finished and that I didn't need to work on it too much more by the end of that same day in August. In a, in a moment, in a time like that, it's not a moment in, in those hours. Do you have a habit now of just like turning on your voice memo recorder to capture it? Or, or do you do a pretty good job of remembering something that, that is newly forming? Right. I try to voice memo everything that I plan on keeping, I guess, whenever I come up with something that I think is good, you know, I think this, I'm not going to remember this. I've, I've too many times I've, recorded i've written something and forgotten to record it and then i never remember it again and it's easier than writing it down on tab or sheet music so i just voice memo it and usually i can remember if i really can't if it's in an obscure tuning i'll write that down but yes i am in general try to voice memo everything that i everything new that i come up with having hung out with you a bunch um i know that you often are gravitating toward an instrument and then you start playing music do you ever turn your phone on like hit record before you even play a single note and then sit down and like officially like I'm going to try writing something or I'm going to try improvising right now or does it always start uh-huh. with the music and then you're you say oh, I need to record this right it depends sometimes I do 
plan on writing something specific, I sit down and I think I should write. I, I don't do that on Banjo too much these days. I feel like I enough times I get a little creative spark and it just without yeah. so much a um uh preconception or any idea, I it just sort of comes it's just kind of an in the moment thing. Yeah. That tuning, I, I love that you play in that tuning. I know of it from the old time world. There's a Clawhammer banjo player I really, really love who's name is Wade Ward. And mm-hmm. I, right before we logged on to record this interview, I was teaching a, a student uh, out in Colorado how to play Wade Ward's Shady Grove, which is very different than like the Jerry Garcia, David Grisman one. Um, and one of Wade Ward's tunes that was recorded by John Cohen, um, he's in this very tuning. I think he's either in double C or double D, but yeah, the fifth string is down to the major third. Um, and it's a glorious, glorious sound. It makes me want to talk to you about your banjo playing in particular, because when we met, you were quite young um, and you were learning Red Haired Boy and some of these very common bluegrass jam tunes. And I know you've put in a ton of work for like, how do you play the girl Scruggs? Like the thing that three finger banjo players do first. Um, But what I was really marveling at in listening to these mastered tracks yesterday and today is that there was literally no time when I was listening to your album where you sounded like a bluegrass banjo player. And I mean that as a compliment because I know that you've, you've spent the time with Earl's music that a lot of people do, but you've also spent quite a bit of time with Noam Pekelny's music, original music and Bela Fleck's original music, but then also listening to things that aren't even you know, didn't even start out as bluegrass, you know, piano music, guitar music. Um, what's that band called that everyone loves that I can't stand? Um, you know them, Radiohead. Oh. <laughs> and and so listening to your full-length debut album that's about to come out, it's really cool to me that you have a voice as a composer on all the, th- the instruments, but on the banjo in particular, it does not sound like bluegrass. It just sounds like beautiful music on the banjo. Yes, um, I appreciate that. This this album, yeah, is sort of intentionally not a bluegrass album. Um, I mean, I I don't think when I when I started writing these compositions, I don't think it came out of a place. I don't I don't, I don't think I was planning on making this concept record, but I do know that when I wrote these, I was listening to a lot of piano players and guitar players, particularly piano players like Jan Tiersen, Olafur Arnolds, um, and guitar players like Leo Kotke. Uh, and Pepino Agostino, just people who are doing um, kind of, I really don't want to call it new age, but just a little bit more contemporary stuff. Um, and I just thought that, you know, this this tonal music, this, you know, somewhat classical, little bit of jazz influence, kind of an amalgam of a lot. But um, this music is hopefully, um, hopefully I can compose this way on banjo. And throughout the pandemic, you know, I had so much time. I was just sitting and playing and I, I was listening to a lot of these musicians that I just, it sort of um, just gotten, I maybe wouldn't say got into my DNA, but at least at that time I was listening so much that I just became part of my playing and my composing style. I began sounding, I was like, oh, this, I, I can hear a little bit of piano in here. Oh, I can hear a little bit of guitar in here. And you can probably hear that in the record in pl- certain places. Yeah, and that's what I mean is that I feel like the banjo is at a point, you know, it has 
these undeniable and crucial roots in the West of Africa and the enslaved people who brought the instrument to this part of the world. And then with old time music and then bluegrass coming about in the 1940s, all of that is so crucial and, and is beautiful music, despite the fraught history of like of slavery and the caste systems in this country and all, all of the politics and situations that brought about the banjo being here and being played and being played by white people. But it's really cool to be a, fa- a fan of the banjo in an era now where you can hear Bela make an album of classical music, or you can hear Noam write a tune like Waveland, or this new record of yours, or, or what Jamie's doing on the banjo, or what Jake Sheps does on the banjo, Adam Larrabee. Like, there's some really extraordinary music that ties back to Earl Scruggs and J.D. Crow and Bill Keith and Tony Trishka, and you have a direct line back to them. You know, you've studied with Tony a bunch, um, and now with Bela, and, and you know, and, and you've worked with Noam a little bit and, and gotten to know him as well. It's just an exciting time to be a fan of banjo music because when when you sent me these tracks I didn't know what to expect but I knew it wasn't going to sound like the Foggy Mountain banjo record or it wasn't going to sound like Bela and Tony's like fiddle fiddle tune record. You've mentioned piano players a bunch, and it was, I happened to know that there was going to be piano on this record just because you enlisted my father, Tim, to tune the piano at Jamie's house. But I absolutely love this piano tune for Kaya. Who is Kaya? Kaya is a friend of mine um, who made the brave choice of attending college during the coronavirus pandemic. She's from England, um, and they had some pretty strict lockdown measures. This was around... I think she started September of last year, Um, but around November, she was having some text conversation um, with my mother, and I heard apparently she was very lonely, missing her family. Um, So I decided to write her a composition, and this is part of the three, I talk about sometimes this live, the three odes of odes codes, I call this ode number three sometimes. Um, And it was interesting because I... I talk about the beginning of the pandemic listening to piano players, but a little bit later in the pandemic, I thought, let's just learn piano. Let me just try to see what I write. And I began learning, I think it was actually going back to um, Chili Gonzalez after Jamie introduced me to Chili. I thought I should, I love this so much that it makes me really want to learn piano again. A little, I don't want to go on a tangent, but little funny stories. The piano was the first instrument I ever um, took lessons, but I didn't really, my, <laughs> my teachers forced sheet music on me and I wasn't good at that and I was a stubborn little student a young kid you know I was only six with my first piano teacher but it is kind of interesting because I was always very attracted to the piano and its sound and its range its depth its warmth everything about it its reverberation I was just very impressed by it and I think I always have been but in this pandemic I somehow found a way back to it specifically Scott Joplin was my big influence when I was a kid Um, and now I've and I think that that was sort of um that instilled a love of piano music for me. Coincidentally, I don't play ragtime now, but it is yeah. now I do it. So anyway, yeah. So I wrote this composition Composition as a dedication to her. It wasn't originally um, supposed to be a public piece. Um, I was just going to send it to her to comfort her, right? This little dedication. Um, and what's funny, you know, I, I said, you know, to myself, I thought this is actually 
I really like this. Uh, this is after I already sent it to her. I was thinking about it. I really like this piece of music. I really like it to be out her. And she was always, she, she was already very moved by it. I'm mean, happy that I wrote this. So and I asked her, is it okay if I include this on my record? And she said, oh, please, please include it on your record. So I decided to put it on the record. And this is probably, this, this track of all the, you know, because there are all these odes, that's, you know, the reason the title exists. Um, so it's probably this pro this track along with the two other odes played a role in, quite obviously played a role in that title. Um, so this, and the special thing about this piece is it's the first, I think it's the first piano piece that I ever completed that I felt like I, um, like this is something that I want to publish. I'd written stuff on piano before, but I think it was after I'd studied up and learned some of the Chili Gonzalez compositions, I thought, hey, I'm getting a little bit of language here. And I remember I just sat down one night and I intentionally wrote this for her, but I had a strike of inspiration and I just wrote it and finished it. I wrote this composition in about um, 20 minutes, which is insane. I wrote it in about 20 minutes. Um, and I obviously um, changed it a little bit later, but I remember this being one of the few compositions that Jamie listened to and he said, yeah, I don't have anything to say. That is the best compliment. Yeah, he, he said, I mean, play play this one thing one more time. He's like, no, mm -mm. Do, it, do it like this. Uh, so that was a good sign. And the fact that this is on an instrument that I don't even know how to play, I still it still feels weird, almost as if, as if I was like channeling a dead composer or something. I don't know what happened, but it um, it played itself out of me and it exists. And since then I have written other piano things, but this somehow this piece is special in that way that it just came out of me in a very short time. Um, and I, I it, and most importantly, there wasn't any, um, like it was, it was all natural. I didn't feel like, dad, this needs a bridge. This needs a B part. This needs a C part, uh, or, you know, whatever, all of that stuff, I completely disregarded it. I wasn't even thinking about what does it need? It just came out of me like that. That's beautiful. And I feel like in my own experience, the music I've written that I like the best and that other people respond to the best tends to be the things where I didn't have to manufacture a B part or where where it, 
it arrives or unfurls itself complete from start to finish. And maybe there's a couple tiny tweaks, but there's not, it doesn't come out half formed and then need a bunch of work to finish it. This particular track reminds me more than anything else on the record of Brian Eno and just that whole ambient music vibe, which is not something I was super familiar with until I got married. And my wife is a, is a big fan of, of Brian Eno's music. And so we often like on a long car ride, I'll put on some Brian Eno or on a Sunday afternoon or something, um, dial that in. Are you familiar? Speaking of ambient or ambient piano music, have you heard the famous Aphex Twin piece, April Fourteenth? No. Oh, you. Oh my God. Well, that's sort of what inspired this piece, or that was sort of the inspiration of this piece, because this is for Kaya is sort of a counterpoint study in a way, mm-hmm. um, and so April Fourteenth is also pure counterpoint. It was written for a player piano, uh, supposedly. Um, not much is known about it because Aphex Twin himself is a very secretive person, <laughs> but. So it was supposedly written for player piano. Um, and I hear, I think I was listening to this composition a little bit and that's sort of what, that was one of the inspirations for this piece of music. But anyway, that, that just, since you're talking about ambient music, that's really, that's, that's, that's a famous piece of music. I think you, you dig. Sometime between the recording of this in August and its publication in October, um, I will make sure to listen to that track and I'll link to it in the show notes um, as well for any of the rest of you who grew up under a rock like I did. Although my rock was old time music like Clawhammer Banjo and Fiddle Tunes. So it was a musical rock, but it meant that I discovered a lot of other things much later in life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I can relate a bit to that. What's something you discovered very recently that you're that you're really into uh speaking musically doesn't matter oh yes japan japanese synth pop is something i've really gotten interested in recently um this is oh i can't believe i forgot to mention his name um ryuichi sakamoto he's a pianist famously scored a lot of films such as merry christmas mr lawrence um i so He's one of my favorite piano players and composers, and I first actually discovered him from another banjo player from Japan by the name of Takami Kodera. He's a great. He was really. He was recently on um, Keith Billick's Picky Fingers podcast. I recommend you check that out. Um, but yeah, so Takami's an outstanding player, and I heard him play this. I wasn't sure what it was. The title was in Japanese, but later I found out that this was not a banjo piece. It was actually a piano piece. Then I discovered Ryuichi Sakamoto. Then I realized I actually knew of this guy because he was in Ryuichi Sakamoto is in some of my father's vinyl collection. So I had actually listened to him a little bit before, but I didn't know him by name. But then I found out about his band he had in the 70s and early mid 80s called Yellow Magic Orchestra. Um, I found out about them back around April. I think I'd always meant to check them out because I had heard of them from Sakamoto's music. And I just heard i think Rydeen the piece and it just changed my life it was so it's so energetic it's so melodic it's modern but it also has like traditional east asian melodies and it's just like a total blend of like modern and, and traditional japanese music and i thought this is this is killing this dry and, and it's also because i was listening to a lot of slow music um I think this was like the, what I needed. It was like really fast music. And I've, I've been, I'm a lifelong electronic music fan. I listened to Kraftwerk a lot and German electronic music in general from that era was a little bit more um, 
dark and ambient, a little bit more um, minimalist. And Japanese um, electronic music from that album was in heavily inspired by that, but they're, it's a little bit more melodic and bright. Um, so it's sort of kind of, they you, you can hear the influence of Kraftwerk and Yellow Magic Orchestra mutually, but they are also like a completely a completely different um, thing. But yeah, that's that's what I would say I've been digging recently. <laughs> J-pop. Oh, I love it. I love it. So we talked about the piano influence and the piano track on on the record. There's also, as you mentioned, a lot of guitar influence in your music. And you're a lovely guitar player. Um, we're currently working on a track together right now that you're contributing electric guitar to. On this album of yours, you have Bittersweet Avenue and Oakland Drive that are solo guitar pieces. And they've totally got the like open tuning, Leo Kotke, mm-hmm. uh, Joseph Spence. Like, there's There's so much acknowledgement and reference to these great finger style guitar players but i feel like you already have like a really strong voice on the guitar um and i know you've been playing it for a while can you tell us about either or both of those tunes and where where they came about yes um throughout the summer of 2020 my family i mentioned this earlier but my family has a cabin in michiana shores indiana and we spent a lot more time out there than usual during the summer of last year and I was playing a lot of guitar, listening to a lot of um, Leo Kotke and fingerstyle stuff, as you mentioned. Um, yeah, and l- yeah, like I just said, I went through a big guitar phase and I was playing a little bit more guitar than banjo some days, you know, and I just, I think Oakland Drive I wrote before, and that, I wrote that, I think, after listening to some of Kotke's debut record, um, 12 and... 12 and six string guitar, I believe if it's called, I, I hope that's the right name of it. But um, I, it's another composition that just sort of flew out of me because I was, it, I think a lot of it, not all the pieces, but this is another piece that was just sort of born out of sheer inspiration or fresh inspiration. And I thought, let's write like a fast finger style piece that has a drive to it. And thus Oakland drive, a little pun was fun. Yeah, I remember writing that at the cabin outside. Specifically, I was going a lot on a lot of bike rides. I, th- I, I think, you know, the nature, it sounds so corny, but the nature and everything fresh air was sort of inspiring me. Um, yeah, I and I sat down and wrote that, um, showed it to Jamie. You know, he did his normal produ- producing, arranging stuff and changed a little bit of things. But that's, there's not much more to say about that. And it's named after um, a street in Michiana Shores called Oakland Drive. And that also brings us to Bittersweet Avenue, which is also named after a street in Michiana Shores by the same name, Bittersweet Avenue. Um, and I wrote this one kind of, kind of in the same way. I probably only a few days later. I remember, I remember specifically, I was working on them both in the same time, um, and I was like, I had these two great guitar pieces, and didn't write too much after that, which is kind of a mysterious and interesting thing. But these, yeah, these two pieces came to me. Bittersweet Avenue was sort of like the, while Oakland Drive is a fast driving tune, Bittersweet Avenue is a little bit more of the contemplative, bittersweet sounding one, especially with that, you know, minor four chord. I I wanted to have that bittersweet vibe.
I remember also with the title, when I was going on a walk, I saw Bittersweet Avenue, and I, I don't think it was a street I was familiar with in that town. I thought, that's a great song title. And I thought, let's name this this little guitar ditty I'm working on, Bittersweet Avenue. And that's pretty much that's pretty much all I have to say about the guitar pieces. They were they were both very spontaneous, very um, spur of the moment. And I haven't written too much on acoustic fingerstyle since then. Well, I love that 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 particular record, the six and twelve string guitar album from the seventies, was ins- an inspiration to you because the September episode with Bruce Molsky. Uh-huh. Um, he talked about being inspired by that exact same record uh, yes. decades before you did. But um, Bruce is will soon be releasing his first ever all guitar record. Um, he's put guitar pieces on a number of his records, and I love his guitar playing. It, guitar is his first instrument, even though he's known as this like world-famous old-time fiddle player. Um, but I find it really cool that in these consecutive episodes that both of you drew inspiration at different points from the exact same album. So y'all should check it out. The last track I want to go deep on with you is the duet that you made with Jamie. I remember the near catastrophic um, circumstance involving your banjo having a problematic fifth string all of a sudden, and you had to, you know, do some troubleshooting and problem solving <laughs> in real time. Um, walk us through. Jamie alluded to this, I know, in his episode, but what's your memory of how this tune became a duet, and then? the the hoops you had to jump through to make it come out um involving two people playing the same banjo in the end right well i came in i planned pretty early on that i wanted to do a duet with jamie because because why not i mean he is a fantastic banjo player obviously you know he's he calls himself an instigator he's a producer but more than anything i think he's a very good banjo player and specifically a good improviser so um I gave him, it was one of the early demos, I just call it a duet for a banjo, um, and that and that basically became what is now Deco, that my initial, my initial, my first demo that I sent to him is the, I, I don't want to delve too deep into the contents of the piece, but that little rhythmic, um, rhythmic thing that you hear over the second part of the song, after the melody that plays like, when Jamie first solos, that little rhythm thing in the back was basically what I brought to him, and I brought a little separate melody, but we started playing off of that, started improvising, um, and we thought, you know, why don't we just both sit down for like 10 minutes, we completely free improvise to nothing, no metronome, nothing, We just, or maybe there was a metronome, but we, yeah, there was a metronome, but we just free improvise to no harmonic boundaries right um and we i remember i made one jamie made one and we we just actually <laughs> we sadly never got to jamie's because apparently mine had enough information for one piece we just got through like the first four minutes and like okay we we, we, we have enough we have all we need um but going to that fifth string problem you mentioned i had there there was very yeah the, there was unfortunate i had unfortunate timing um on the day, I'm not sure what day of the studio session it was, but the day we planned on recording the duet, got out my banjo and the fifth string, was tuning it up a little bit and it got really tight and it wasn't turning. And then I turned it back and it wasn't turning back well. And you know how a tuner is supposed to have a certain type of smoothness. It was just completely, didn't have that smoothness. It was going in in um, like chunks and clicks. I don't even know how to describe it. It, w- it wasn't smooth and I could, t- I, it was, n- the two, there was no- something noticeably wrong with the tuner. 
So fortunately, we're in Fort Collins. We're in um, Longmont, Colorado. Own banjos is in that area of Colorado. So my parents actually took my banjo um, that day um, to get a replacement fifth string peg, and we had to only use Jamie's banjo. But as Jamie mentioned in his interview, our banjos are pretty much identical. They're the same year, same model. Um, weirdly enough, the serial numbers are nothing alike. We, I remember we discovered this during the sessions. That's that's that still is. A bit puzzling, but yeah, same model, same year. They sound the same. Um, we did some setup work on Jamie's banjo to make it sound more like mine, such as loosening the head down to like an F or so, just to make sure that it had the depth that my banjo had. Um, but in the end, it sounded identical to mine. Um, Deco was all recorded on that banjo. We didn't, it wasn't live. This was the most edited track of the whole record. I was fortunate um, uh, that I didn't need too much editing. I remember Jamie was actually somewhat impressed. I was, we, we wrote these song. We, most of these compositions only needed like two to three edits around there. Um, and Deco was, is the exact opposite. Deco was pure edits. It's just a fun little Pro Tools project. Um, fortunately, our, our engineer, David, David Trapper Smith, did a very good job of making it sound natural and smooth. But of all the tracks, that's the only one that's really kind of cut up. banjo we also even used jamie's banjo for some other tracks one track that didn't make it on the record but the last track of the record alta um i recorded on jamie's banjo as well um but it hey it sounds identical it sounds identical to my banjo so it ended up working out so if folks want to keep track of of what you're up to i know that you have quite a presence on youtube and a really great patreon page um where listeners and banjo enthusiasts and students can get access to your music ahead of time and and lessons and tablature. Um, would you be willing, as the Patreon exclusive for this episode, to drop a few nuggets of banjo wisdom to the, to the supporters of this program? Oh, I would be happy to. That'd be awesome. Because I'm thinking about how it wasn't that long ago that you were a banjo student and now you're a banjo teacher. And you've taken a lot of classes and a lot of workshops, and that's going to be really exciting. So if y'all want to support this show, or for all of you who already do, um, Max is going to share seven to ten minutes worth of, of banjo, maybe some practice tips, or we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, this is being recorded in about August, and will air in October. Come October, you're going to be starting music school. Tell us a little bit about where you're going to be going to school and what you see yourself doing there. 
Yes, so I'm going to Oberlin Conservatory um, in Oberlin, Ohio, uh, as a composition major, basically. Um, I, I looked at three schools, um, applied to three, Berklee College of Music, New England Conservatory, and Oberlin, and I got into all three, fortunately, and then at the end, it was a very tough decision, decision between NEC and Oberlin. Um, eventually I sort of decided to do Oberlin because it's undergraduate only. For instance, I can always do NEC as a, for my master's and Oberlin's also a lot closer to where I live in Chicago. And it's just a beautiful campus. It's a little bit slower pace. It's a cow, you know, it's a slow pace, slow pace cow town. It kind of feels more relaxing than getting to learn about Boston since I'm coming from a big city now to learn a whole nother one sounds like a little bit of homework. Or street work, actually. Um, but yeah, so I yeah I got accepted into the composition program. Um, one of five students, which was a complete shock to me. Um, I was a little bit, I didn't really believe what I saw. Um, I've talked, I've met, and talked in person with two of my professors. I remember talking to Stephen Hartke, who's a, he'll he'll actually be on sabbatical next year, but he he'll be coming back, of course. Um, and I you know I asked him you know I feel like. Oberlin almost take, took a risk accepting a banjo player into their into their program. And he said, you know, why not? <laughs> why not? I mean, and he, and he had actually composed a piece of music for banjo um, a few years back called Muse of, Muse of the Missouri. Um, Greg List was a banjo player. It was a whole orchestra piece with that, that featured the banjo. And Greg List does a fantastic job doing, you know, playing whatever Stephen wrote. Um, it's pretty outstanding. But I was happy to hear that Stephen had, that Mr. Hartke had um, background in composing for the banjo. Um, yeah, so I talked with, and you know, they the, the nice thing is that, you know, I submitted actually the tracks, a couple tracks from this record. One track that I, um, that I wrote a while back, but I think two of them were from this very record. Um, so I guess you could say this record helped me get into school, <laughs> which is fortunate. But he, but he said, you know, we, we, were, we were just impressed with your work and what we think a banjo would be interesting. And it seems to be Oberlin is very, they've always been progressive, open-minded. Um, they seem to be very excited about the idea of having a non, uh, an instrument that isn't traditionally studied at a call in a college level at, at their conservatory. And, and Jesse Jones, who's another um, professor, um, actually plays mandolin and banjo. He, it's an interesting story. He actually came to one of my concerts when I was touring with Barbro in Ohio. Um, we were playing in Wakeman at River Dog Retreat, which is the, just one town over from Oberlin. So I thought, you know, let's invite my professor. So Jesse Jones, um, he came to the show and we talked a little bit. Um, and he started with, it's interesting, he started with piano and when he was very young. He broke his arm and unfortunately. And then he ended up playing mandolin because his family listened to bluegrass and they had a mandolin laying around the house. So he was always familiar with bluegrass, played mandolin, then played banjo eventually. And of course he can play piano now. Um, it's, it wasn't a permanent accident, but so the fact, just the lone fact that they have a, a professor who knows bluegrass, knows how to play banjo um, and all that, I think is pretty cool and probably, probably helped me get in um, by the fact that they're not like, oh, I don't want to, we don't want a hillbilly banjo player come to our program. I don't know if you can call yourself a hillbilly banjo player if you're from Logan Square. 
I cannot call being from Chicago. No, I'm not a hillbilly banjo player. But uh, just the loans. I mean, the stereotype alone, people might think we don't want banjo players here. But I'm. It that seems to be changing. That stereotype seems to be changing. So, anyway, yeah, I. You know, I feel I've visited Oberlin Conservatory, or I visited the campus of Oberlin College five times now. I think just from driving through, and every single time I visit there, it feels more like home. I can really. At first, I was like, eh, I'm not sure if I feel ready for leaving for college, but now I, I really do. Um, I'm excited. Um, obviously, I'll be. I can come back home in summers. I'll miss this place. I'll miss this Chicago and my family and everything, and my dog. <laughs> but it'll be fine, because. I really love Oberlin. It seems to have interesting people, interesting teachers, great course offerings, seminars, all that stuff. It's it's the full experience. And it's a little bit um, one of the reasons I decided to do it first before NEC is because it's a little bit more of a traditional college experience. It's not only a conservatory like NEC, which is solely a conservatory. This is college with a conservatory. So you can take courses in history and English and languages if you want um, to supplement one college class is required for a conservatory student. So I'm going to have to do some college stuff. Yeah. I recommend to any uh, college bound student, including yourself, if you, if you can take a public speaking class, that is, that was the most helpful class I, I took in my four years of college. Um, I loved the music classes. I loved the philosophy classes. I studied a bunch of languages, but if I think about what that one semester of public speaking did, it made my writing better as someone who now has a podcast and you know s- speaks on stage occasionally. There's nothing like a class designed <laughs> around public speaking to help organize our thoughts and remove some of the verbal pauses and the ums and the uhs and the ugh, whatever, whatever people do before they take the public cursing. Speaking. Yeah, like not saying <laughs> shit and fuck and all that. Um, yeah, that's my recommendation. The other cool thing about you going to Oberlin which you well know, is that um, you'll have a chance to study with Chris Eldridge, Critter, from Punch Brothers. And right before we logged on to conduct this interview, I was on your Spotify page and scrolled down to the the section where it's like other artists that that people listen to who listen to Max Allard. And of course, it's like Tony Trishka, Noam Pakelny, Bela Fleck, Nickel Creek, and Punch Brothers. And I love that... Um, you're going to have some chances to interact with with Chris in a college setting. He's got a couple courses he's been teaching this year, and um, I know you two have now chatted about about seeing each other on campus and working together. It's so cool that this band that has been one of your favorites for a long time, and is obviously your fans are are fans of both you and of Punch Brothers, that you're going to get to develop a relationship with Chris. That's that's really cool. I'm very excited. I had thanks to you. I had a little phone call with him before, um, before I made my final decision on going to Oberlin. He said so many great things about it, and he he helped me get as excited as I am now about it. So, I, I'm I'm pretty hyped. I love it. Well, um, I know you're going to have a really a really great time, and it, I think it's a really brave thing to to go to a situation like you're describing where. It's, you're just one of five composition students. Banjo isn't commonly studied there or, or treated as the primary instrument by a student there. Um, but it makes sense given your trajectory that you're not you're not just looking to be a really good bluegrass banjo player. You want to have and are developing and are and have a voice as a composer, not just for banjo and not just within the the growing 
uh, world of bluegrass, but just as a musician, as a composer. And I know your interests, your musical interests are global and cross the decades and the centuries. And going somewhere like Oberlin seems like a really, a really good fit and like a, a nice brave leap. <laughs> um, and I have a feeling that four years from now, the compositions you're going to be writing for either yourself or for larger ensembles are going to be a really compelling uh, bit of music. Yes, I'm excited. And I plan to hopefully compose for even more ban- uh, for more instruments than banjo, like piano and guitar and whatever I can. I, I can learn how to, if I want to, to compose for an orchestra, which sounds super intimidating, but they that's that seems to be what they usually do for senior year. So Yeah, and hopefully you can write a string quartet. I feel like Right. That's, that's probably maybe junior year. I haven't looked at the curriculum recently. The first two years are mostly or, uh, chamber orchestra okay, stuff. Great. So I'm very curious to hear your chamber music. Well, folks, you've got a lot to look forward to here with Max's forthcoming album, Odes, Codes. And make sure to follow him on Instagram and on YouTube. And if you can afford it, um, his Patreon feed is well worth supporting. The final thing you're going to hear from him on this episode is a complete rendition of Benton's Lullaby, which is a great way to fall asleep and a beautiful piece of music. And Patreon supporters, you'll get to get some some banjo banjo nerd tips from Max. So with all that, Max, thank you so much for your time and for your beautiful music. And yeah, best of luck at Oberlin. Thank you. And thank you for having me on this podcast. I'm excited, excited for this episode. Relax Your Grid is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Matt Brown. Post-production assistance is provided by Tim Brown. Otto Allard is the designer. 
If you noticed the glorious absence of CBD ads during the show, that's because it is funded entirely by Patreon support. If you'd like to show your appreciation, please pledge at $2 a month to become a Relax Your Grid superfan. Just go to patreon.com slash Dream to sign up. Tune in next time for my interview with clawhammer banjoist Adam Hurt, and until then, relax your grid. <laughs>